Good morning, everyone. Uh, this just seems like a, a special, particularly joyful morning. I don't know what it was. As, um, maybe it was the liveliness of singing, uh, Oh, Give Thanks. Maybe it's just the fact that you really feel that spring is in the air this morning. I know definitely some of it, though, is that we're able to see a, f- a few of you for the first time that we haven't seen in a year, and that itself feels uh, very beautiful. Um, but we come this morning, though, uh, to not only worship God, but to hear from his word. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, you can turn to Matthew 18, or if you uh, also have the, the text that's printed in your worship folder as well there. We've been going through a series leading up to Easter on some themes related to the kingdom of God. And today we're going to be looking at what the kingdom of God looks like as a community. And so before we come to uh, reading the word, uh, let's first pray uh, that God would bless uh, the reading and preaching in this time. Father, I thank you for the life that you give and the life that you impart from your word. Thank you for being a God who hears our prayers. And so we come to you here listening to you and we, we pray that you would give us ears to hear And we pray that you would use this to impart life to us in our, in perhaps our our emptiness that we feel. Uh, Give us uh, life in in our our spirits. And would you be conforming us into the image of Jesus? Allow us to hear him clearly this morning. For the sake of your kingdom, amen. Let me Read Matthew 18, the whole chapter. This is the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name and receives me, or whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them in my in my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seeking him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. Well, if the kingdom of God is people who are brought together and being renewed under the, the reign of Christ the King, then how is that community of people to function together? What does life look like with each other? And these are not insignificant questions. And these questions matter to Jesus because the kingdom matters to him. And not just the idea of a kingdom, not just the organization or the kingdom as a whole, but also the individuals who make up that kingdom. And it's because Jesus cares deeply about his kingdom, he also cares about how it functions. Because how it functions affects the individuals who are in it. He cares deeply because his mission was to come and to die for it. To die for the flock and to bring them into reconciliation with God. And to die for each and every one of those sheep who make up the flock to willingly go to the cross and to lay his life down on their behalf. Therefore, Jesus is interested in ensuring that his kingdom community is well-functioning. He wants peace and flourishing to abound on his terms. And as the disciples come here with questions on everyday community life, they need their understanding corrected on how that's to be done. And that shouldn't surprise us because we need correcting too. But we need to be brought back to see how Jesus the King desires the community to function. To think well about it. And also for our hearts to follow suit and our lives then to bear that out. 
And some of us need correcting because we've been on the receiving end of, of times when the community, either individually or as a whole, hasn't treated us so well. And maybe you've kept yourself at length then from the body because of that. Or maybe you've become convinced that, you know, this is just how the church is. But no matter what, I want us to see this morning from this passage that community life in the kingdom is to reflect the character of the king. The community life in the kingdom is to reflect the character of the king. And Jesus lays out what life looks like with one another in his kingdom. And it reflects his characteristics. It reflects his qualities. And we see that this morning in his humility, in his concern, in his restoration, and in his forgiveness. And so let's look first of all at the the humility here. Humility in the kingdom, starting at verse 1. The disciples bring this question again before Jesus. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And the question takes on a little bit different, and in fact a little more urgent tone. When you put this in context with Jesus having having told them repeatedly that he's going to suffer and die and then leave them. And so essentially what they're asking is, Jesus, when you're gone, who's going to take over? Jesus, tell us about the hierarchy or the organizational ladder in this kingdom that you're building. How do you advance upwards? And this is where he introduces the analogy of a child. See this little child? Be like little children. Because if you don't, you won't enter the kingdom. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, then embrace humility and be like this little child. So what's he mean by that? He's talking about humbling yourself like a little child. He's referring to being positionally there, referring to a child positionally. It's the young children who really are at the bottom of, a fi- of the, the family hierarchy. The littlest ones really don't have any real authority in the family. They're at the bottom when it comes to decision-making. In fact, if you think about it, being a young child is being in a pretty humbling spot. I don't know about you, but the only real decision-making that our young kids have in our family is what they want for breakfast and what clothes they want to wear. And we as parents still have ultimate veto power. Glad you didn't see them the other day. But there's also a dependence that children have which comes from their position. They're weak. They're lowly. And they're forced to come in reliance and dependence to their loving parents. See, this is the childlike nature. This is humility with dependence and reliance here. This is what Jesus says is vital to entering the kingdom. You have to recognize that you have nothing in yourself to be able to enter. That it's not earned. That you aren't entitled to it by any special privilege that you have. That the only way that you can take part in this magnificent kingdom is by reaching out and taking hold of it by faith. And it takes humility then for us to to check our merits at the door and admit that we've failed. Especially when we are accustomed to to earning what we get. But at the same time, that humility levels all of us in the kingdom. Because not a single one of us has entered apart from grace. Not one of us can even enter apart from grace. And it levels us then in not only entering the kingdom, it also levels us as we live together in the kingdom. This childlike humility is foundational for communal life. Because we are reflecting the king. The nature of his kingdom reflects his person. 
And the Son of God then showed true greatness as he stepped down from eternal majesty to humble himself infinitely when, he took, when the Creator took on the very garb of his creation. And his lowering himself then below others culminated in serving the lost sheep by suffering on the cross in their place. Willingly stepping into your place on the cross and taking the wrath of God in your stead. Can you think of anything more humbling than trading a position of beauty and glory with that of someone living out the natural consequences of their own wrong decisions and their failures? But that's what greatness is. That greatness reflects our Savior. And Jesus takes what we see as great, the top position, and he flips it upside down. It means that we don't look out, it means that we don't look out for how we can climb the ladder. It means that we aren't seeking for positions of status. We don't elevate ourselves over our fellow brothers and sisters. Every one of us is on the same standing. We're at the bottom. We're all recipients at the bottom. And it even causes us then to sit back and even reevaluate how we determine greatness or the worth of one another. And if we have a hard time being humble, if you know you have a hard time being humble, then take a good look at the cross again. Because if you think that you're something, the cross will show you that you are really nothing. Because the cross of Christ says that this is the only way that you could be saved. The only way that you could gain entry into his kingdom, just like everyone else. See, the cross deflates our egos. And when we have that proper understanding of ourselves, then we are more apt to regard one another with humility. To try to not gain an upper hand, but instead to serve, to listen, and to receive criticism honestly. So we have first, humility. But second, we have concern, which begins in verse, verse 5. Jesus says, you must be a child to enter my kingdom. Humble yourself like a child to be great. And then now Jesus pushes that analogy a little bit further by directly applying it, by referring to those individuals in his kingdom as children or as little ones. These are terms of endearment. These are titles which convey deep love. And like a parent to a child, it expresses his tender concern for his people, a love that is wrapped up with joy a desire for their flourishing. Verse 5 says that to receive one of these children in his name, one of these who he loves and cares about deeply, is to receive Jesus. In other words, welcoming what Jesus loves is tantamount to welcoming Jesus. He binds himself so tightly to, to his people that showing concern for your brothers and sisters in the faith is showing concern for the very one who loves them who laid his life down for them. And if you recognize that, it will radically affect how you view others with you that are in the kingdom. Because that means desiring what Jesus desires for it. And that's its flourishing. He wants it to flourish in holiness. He wants it to be built up and encouraged to persevere in righteousness. It means strengthening the weak who are among us, lifting them up when they are weary or exhausted by life. It means bearing one another's burdens, sharing both the joys and the sorrows as we continue on the path. It means encouraging one another in the faith, pointing each other to the gospel, exhorting each other in the truth of God's word. All of this for the well-being and for the flourishing 
of the kingdom community that Jesus loves so much. But there's another side of this as well. If welcoming and showing concern for what Jesus loves is doing the same towards Jesus, then what is hindering and assaulting what he loves? It's ultimately doing the same towards Jesus himself. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, before he's the Apostle Paul, when he is Saul the Pharisee, is persecuting the, the church. And he's traveling on the, 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 the Damascus road, and Jesus confronts him in a blaze of glory. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting the church, but Jesus says, no, you're not persecuting the church. You're persecuting what I love and what I'm bound to. You're persecuting me. Show me a man who will protect and defend his wife and children in the face of danger, and I will show you someone who is full of deep love. Jesus loves his people, and that provokes him to wrath when his good purposes for them are threatened. That's what we see in verse 6. If anyone is going to get in the way of my beautiful intentions for my people, they're flourishing in righteousness, and Jesus says they're going to meet my wrath. It would be better for them if they were tied to a heavy stone and thrown and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. That's shocking to us. But when we hear that, though, it shows the deep concern and the deep care that Jesus has for his little ones. Now, when we read about causing these little ones to sin, the word Jesus uses in the original language for that is much stronger. It actually has the idea of bringing them to ruin or of causing them to stumble and to fall away. And he even goes on to pronounce a curse on anyone who gets in the way of their spiritual flourishing or of anyone who brings them to ruin. The ideas of placing blocks or obstacles in front of them, getting in their way and causing them to stumble and fall. It's the spiritual equivalent of dropping bricks in the path of a blind person or of giving false directions to someone who's lost on unfamiliar roads or of removing all the stop signs at a four-way intersection. It's setting someone up for potential disaster. And Jesus will have none of it for his little ones. He's serious with his warning to make sure that you are not wrecking the faith of your fellow brothers and sisters or doing anything that will cause them to doubt the goodness of God or inhibiting their spiritual flourishing and causing them to wander. It's one thing for these sorts of obstacles and temptations to come from outside the church. That's expected. But it's an entirely different matter, he says here, for those others inside the church, for fellow members of the kingdom of God to be doing this to one another. So Jesus says to cut off whatever is going to tempt you to sin, this woe-inducing sin of bringing temptations and stumbling blocks to your brothers and sisters. Take a good look at yourself. Are you dropping bricks in the path of, of another? Then Jesus says to deal with your issues in a constructive and a God-honoring manner. Take extreme measures even for the good of one another because it's not worth it to fall under his anger. And that might even be personally painful. We might have to reckon first for, for the first time of certain patterns or traits that we have. But it gets down to this question. Do you love what Jesus loves? Do you have the same concern for his little ones that he does? We have humility. 
We have concern. But we also have restoration. Starting in verse 10. This is also a kingdom of restoration. Jesus says to take care that you aren't putting any stumbling blocks or bearing responsibilities for ruin for anyone else. But he also says that it's inevitable that some in the community will fall into sin and wander away. There's a certain reality when he says that temptations will come back in verse 7. And though the kingdom will not fall apart or the community will not fail, he still has a concern for those individuals who do wander away into sin. And there are times when it would just be easier to let them go on their way. They've been too much of a burden, and now they've finally left and went into their sin. Let them go. We've had it. Or it just hurts too much. They've caused us such a particular pain in their sin. Or perhaps even it's just plain anger. How could they do this to us? But that's not who Jesus is. He doesn't just love the whole. He also loves and has concern for the individuals. Earlier in Matthew 16, he gives this promise to his disciples that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom will not fail. The church will be victorious. But Jesus' concern extends also to the individuals who make up that kingdom. And that means that he seeks after the restoration of those who are wandering and those who are lost. Again, he refers to those in his kingdom individually as these little ones. It's a term of endearment for children and it entails such a deep love and individual care and concern. I think a lot of parents go, undergo that scary moment when you think you've lost a child. It's happened to me before. There's a certain panic when you're in public and there's the terror that you have because you love that child. But what parent would say, honey, I can't find the child, but you know what? We still have the rest of our kids. The rest of the family's intact, so it's all right. Pile in the car and we'll just go. Let's just quit while we're ahead here. No, that doesn't happen because it's not just a concern about the whole, but it's also a concern and a love for the, for the individuals who are in it. And likewise, Jesus isn't only concerned about the people as a whole, but he's also concerned about the people individually. And he tells a brief parable then about a shepherd and his sheep. A person tending his flock there brings him into a pen at night and he counts them up and he sees that all except one have gone through the door. There's one out of the hundred hasn't come through. And that shepherd, because he cares not just about the whole flock, but he cares also about that one sheep. That shepherd will leave the others in the pen and he will go about seeking for that lone wandering sheep. And he goes out and he will not stop until he finds and recovers it and then brings it back home. And all the while, he brings it back home and he is singing with joy. This is the will of God. This is what he loves. His desire is to bring back the wandering, to, restore, to see the flourishing of the whole and also the restoration of the individual. In fact, it's the restoration of the individual that leads to the flourishing of the whole. It's the community as a whole who rejoices when that happens. Jesus, as the good shepherd, laid his life down, not just for the flock, but in place of those particular sheep who are in the flock. And he shares in the Father's desire to bring back and to restore those who wander away or who become entrapped. Hebrews 12 says that it was for the joy 
that was set before him, he endured the cross. This isn't arduous. It's what he came to do. He loves it. And here's the wonderful, yet also challenging truth for the church. Jesus uses the community as the means to seek out and to restore those lost individuals. His seeking the wandering sheep and restoring the person doesn't, who has fallen into sin doesn't just occur automatically. It doesn't just happen on its own. God uses earthly means to accomplish his heavenly will on earth. And he uses the community then as that means of restoration. And as we must see then, that he also then gives the church community the privilege of being the means of that restoration. Because he allows the church to share in his joy when those wandering sheep are brought back into the fold. And he lays that out, that out here at the beginning in verse 15. This is how the community goes about seeking and restoring those who have wandered. When a, a member witnesses another member in errant sin, or if they're sinned against personally, you first go to that person. But you don't go in anger or just to call out their wrong, but you go with care to show them their sin for the purpose of restoration. Show them their error. Bring them back to the gospel. And hopefully that's the end. Hopefully there's repentance and joy when that person sees their sin and is restored. Because at that point then, the wandering sheep has been, has been restored. They've been brought back. But if that doesn't happen, then do it again. Bring a couple more with you as witnesses. And if that restoration fails there, then bring it to the church. And if that still doesn't happen, then Jesus says, let them go wander outside the fold. But not as a means of punishment. Out of love. Sometimes love forces us to do hard things with tears. But note that even though the steps are lined out with an increasing seriousness, because it is serious, there's also no specific timeline that's given for them to be carried out, just simply the order. The Spirit, then, this ought to be done with His patience, with gentleness, and care. Seriousness isn't opposed to these virtues. Simply moving straight to the end as quickly as you can, simply trying to get through the steps to the end there, doesn't go through with the intent that Jesus has, which is restoration, which is care. Care for the community, certainly, that the individual would not bring temptation or ruin to the whole, but also care for that individual, that they would see their sin, and that they would see what their stubbornness has brought them, and that they would come back repentant and eventually restored. Sometimes that can take a very long time. Sometimes it can take years and years. But when those individuals are brought back and restored, you better believe that the rejoicing that's heard on earth is only an echo of the party that's being thrown in heaven. The last then, fourth point here is forgiveness. Beginning in verse 21, forgiveness. Restoration in community life will entail forgiveness. And forgiveness can be hard. Peter hears all of Jesus' words here, especially about the restoration of those in the community when they sin. And he asks, how often am I to forgive then? Seven times? In other words, what are the limits of my forgiveness? How often do I forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? Especially if it's the same wrong that's done time and time again. Well, Jesus challenges Peter's assumption. He says, not seven times, 77 times. 
Now, he's not raising, just simply raising the cap on the limits of forgiveness. He used this, he's using this phrase to blow Peter's ideas out of the water here. Peter, you ought to forgive over and over again without constraint if you truly understand the forgiveness that the Father has for you. The kingdom is built upon the forgiveness of sins. First and foremost, God's forgiveness of our sins, which is then reflected throughout the community as we forgive one another. And he tells a parable then to illustrate this reality. There's a servant who has what's really an an, an insurmountable debt to a master. A debt that, assuming it didn't grow, would ordinarily ordinarily take him over 200,000 years to pay off. And all he can do is beg for mercy. And the king then forgives him of this debt. Now we'd expect this man to be changed by this master's incredible mercy and forgiveness. But he's not. Because it seems to have fallen on a hardened heart He goes to his fellow servant who owes him a substantial but still a reasonable debt, which would have taken about a hundred days to pay pay off, a hundred denarii. And he demands with violence, choking him, that it be paid immediately. And then when this fellow servant pleads for mercy, using the same words even that the first one, the first servant used with his master, the servant says no, and he throws him in jail. The word then gets to the king and he becomes angry and he brings the servant before him and he asks him, don't you comprehend what I just did for you? Do you remember what you owed? Do you even understand my mercy? How has that not changed you? And then he has a servant thrown into prison as he first deserved. The kingdom of God is where the phrase, you are forgiven, flourishes and is passed with sincerity between one another because it's founded on the limitless forgiveness that God has for us as our sins were nailed to the cross and were dealt with in finality. Just because that's so, though, doesn't mean that's easy to do. Peter's question is often our question. I have been hurt so many times by the same person, and I'm still to forgive them over and over That person has hurt me in ways that have changed the course of my life. And I'm trying to pick up the pieces. How can I possibly forgive them? These are very real difficulties as, as these are lived out. True forgiveness reckons with the severity of offense. It may come with tears as it conveys the hurt. It may take time. But if you understand what it means to be forgiven by God in Christ, then you know what it means to be shown mercy when you have never once deserved it. When you begin to understand that and allow it to sink into your soul, then you will begin then to have a heart that is willing to forgive. But also don't forget that you need to be forgiven by others also. And this is where the community built on the forgiveness of sin starts to become really beautiful here. Because it becomes a people who know mercy, who experience mercy, and receive mercy between each other in the day-to-day. We're a community who can be honest with our sins to each other. And we can come with repentance towards one another when we wrong each other. Because mercy flourishes. It ought to abound among us. This ought to be a place where we can expect those freeing words, I forgive you, to be expressed with the deepest sincerity. Because the mercy of Jesus takes precedence among us. 
How is greatness measured? How is it seen in the kingdom? It's by extending the beautiful characteristics of the king towards one another. Humility, concern, restoration, forgiveness. Those things which he has for us. And this is where our dependence as children then comes in. Because extending these to one another isn't easy. And it certainly doesn't come natural. But we come in dependence to a heavenly father whose will is to form us into the image of Christ and who grants us both faith and the spirit then to embrace these virtues and to grow in them as well. Let's pray. Father, you have called us into community. We are to reflect the nature of our king, but these are hard things. They run against our very natural inclinations that we have. But we do ask that you would enable us to live them out. But not just to live them outwardly, but to first change our heart, to change our thinking. And Father, forgive us, even as the the kingdom is built on the forgiveness of sins, forgive us over and over as we fail. We pray that you would renew us again, day by day, so that your kingdom may flourish, and it may flourish for all to see, and that we would be seen with the same sort of humility as children, not in greatness as the world wants to, to put upon us here. May the world, the world then, as they look upon us, may we, even as we look at each other here, see the king's work, see his mercy among us. We come to the table now where that mercy is manifest for us again, visibly. So we come humbly now. In Jesus' name, amen.